When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The caucuses and conventions of the 40 national elections which had preceded that of 1948 were as real to me as the one before which I was about to make my appearance. They were typical of the American way of life and of the wonderful system of self-government that had developed over a period of 160 years. The convention system has its faults, of course, but I do not know of a better method for choosing a presidential nominee. Harry S. Truman Dear Uncle Horace, I was very pleased to get your letter of June 29th. Of course, after so much effort, the result of the convention was a disappointment. But personally, I am better off and likely to live a longer and happier life. What I regret more than Wilkie's nomination is the method in which it was brought about. There's no doubt in my mind that it was engineered from Wall Street and the Telegraph campaign was manufactured by the employment of nearly every advertising agency in the United States, the gallery was packed with Wilkie supporters by our friend Sam Pryor, who issued 3,000 tickets every day. Money flowed very freely, even among some of the delegations. Robert A. Taft We were preceded on the program by six of the most amazing Points of Light recipients, and then Marilyn Quayle spoke. She is a great wife and mother, and a very bright woman. Unfortunately, her speech did not convey her warmth or caring, and she was very much criticised for it. Then it was my turn. In all honesty, I can't remember a word that I said. But the highlight of my talk came when I called the family out, and ten children and twelve grandchildren appeared. The next night, I raced to the convention hall so I could hear Jerry Ford speak. He and Betty were so great to be there, and he gave a marvellous speech. He was followed by Senator Jack Danforth, Dan Quayle, and Bob Dole, who, in his very commanding yet funny way, introduced George. Of course, I think George was great, but I wasn't the only one. He was interrupted so many times that his 35-minute speech took almost an hour. A convention that had started out on a rocky footing ended on a very high note for us. Barbara Bush I could hear the roar of the demonstration taking place on the convention floor. As I started toward the podium, the roar began to swell from the convention floor. I'd heard the chant a couple of times before, during convention week, but not from 10,000 voices at once. I couldn't believe it. I was on. Speak softly and don't trip. Loftier thoughts should probably have been going through my head as I walked the last few feet to the podium. After all, this was a moment women had been dreaming of and working toward for generations. Yet I wasn't thinking about the extraordinary symbolic significance of this event. What seemed far more important now was to remember not to trip on or off the elevated platform that would raise my five-foot-four-inch frame high enough over the podium to be seen from the convention floor and to slowly introduce myself to the entire country. Geraldine Ferraro. 
In the next month, the Republican and Democratic parties will hold their national conventions to choose their respective parties' nominee for president. Given the current pandemic situation, the conventions will look much different than they have for a while. However, as with anything, history shows us that what we think of as the modern-day party convention looked and operated quite differently in previous eras. Thus, I thought it would be a good occasion to step back in time and take a look at the history of national party conventions in the United States. Welcome, dear listener, to this special episode of The Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As always, I had great help in terms of readers for the intro quotes. It seemed only appropriate for Micah Brinkner, the host of Number One Observatory Circle, to give voice to Truman. On his podcast, Micah examines the individuals who have served as Vice President of the United States. He started with the individuals who have lived in the Vice President's official residence, which, you may be surprised to learn, has only been an official residence for the V. POTUS since the tenure of President Ford. With each episode, Micah examines the nebulous role of the Vice President and how it has been approached by those who have held the office previously. Number One Observatory Circle has been a great new addition to my personal listening rotation, so be sure to check it out. Friend of the podcast, Sean Warswick, gave voice to Senator Robert A. Taft. If you haven't checked out the American History Podcast yet, be sure to follow it on your favorite podcast app. If you're listening to this around the time of release, one of the most recent episodes was Sean's third anniversary special, where you might hear a familiar voice discussing the third term of FDR. A great sequel if you enjoyed the special episode of this podcast on the 1940 election. Beyond that episode, Sean's thoughtful examination of various points in American history is well worth a listen. Just as it seemed only right to have a former VP voiced by a podcaster of vice presidential history, so too was Elizabeth Rees of the FLOTUS podcast the perfect choice to give voice to Barbara Bush. In her podcast, Elizabeth is looking into the lives of each of the women who have served as First Lady. Naturally, you'll learn about some of the more well-known First Ladies, but as will come as no surprise to regular listeners of this podcast, I greatly enjoy the time and research that Elizabeth puts in to studying the First Ladies who are not so familiar to the general public. If you like presidencies, I have no doubt that you'll enjoy the FLOTUS podcast. I'll have links for Number One Observatory Circle, the American History Podcast, and the FLOTUS podcast on the source notes page for this episode on the website. Last but certainly not least, my dear friend Robin gave voice to Geraldine Ferraro. Robin has been a great supporter of my efforts both in podcasting as well as in my offline world. She is a constant bright light in the lives of all who know her, and I can't thank her enough for not just providing this intro quote, but for all the friendship and love that she has given without question. Before we dive in, I want to reiterate that the purpose of the special series is to bring people together to appreciate a shared history and to learn and grow together. I always encourage everyone to seek out knowledge, but that journey is not always an easy one. With the advent of the internet and information at your fingertips, it has become easier to obtain information, but the onus is still on the information seeker to discern whether the source is reliable or not. That's where verifying through multiple sources comes in and being aware of any intended or unintended bias on the part of the source. Bias doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true, as we all have a bias. But it does mean you may not be seeing the whole truth when you just engage with one source for your information. That's why I consult with multiple sources for this podcast, to ensure that the information that I provide is as accurate as it can be. Also, I think it important to note that the divisive nature of politics is nothing new as we've already seen and will continue to explore in this podcast. 
Just because it's been done before, though, doesn't mean that you have to do the same. Though we can never be perfect, we can strive to be good and kind and just to one another. Working towards that ideal has always been enough, and it will be again so long as we get on to it. With that said, let's turn our attention to the history of U.S. presidential politics. As we've discussed in previous episodes of this special series, the presidential nominees were not always chosen at a national convention. Up until the 1824 election, as discussed in special episode 4, Unprecedented Part 1, the Congressional Caucus was the primary system by which the parties would choose their nominees. Congressional members would gather together with their colleagues in the same political faction in Washington, D.C. to decide who they were going to support for president. Andrew Jackson and his supporters, however, saw this as just another sign of a corrupt political system in need of reform. Why should the politicians in Washington decide who was going to be the chief executive of the nation, especially when the Democratic-Republican Party became the only viable political faction remaining? The initial work in the lead-up to 1828 was to build a new national party to rally behind Andrew Jackson to oppose President John Quincy Adams. But once Jackson's victory was assured, the question then became how this new party would proceed. They would also find that they weren't alone in that respect. Political parties up to that point could better be described as factions with quite loose organizations. But it was clear that a country that had grown substantially since its founding in terms of geography and population necessitated a more organized effort if presidential candidates were to appeal to all corners of the United States in a national election. Thus, in September 1831, the Anti-Masonic Party brought together 116 delegates representing 13 states at a convention in Baltimore, Maryland, in what was to become the first national nominating convention in U.S. history. What's that, you say? You've never heard of the Anti-Masonic Party? Well, they wouldn't be around all that long, so I'm thinking that a deeper dive into them would be contrary to our purposes with this episode. However, I think it's worth noting that various figures who would play prominent roles in 19th century U.S. political history, including William H. Seward, Thaddeus Stevens, and Thurlow Weed, were in attendance. Fear not, though, dear listener, and rest assured that they will be discussed on this podcast at some point, especially as they play a key role in the coalition of the Whig Party. In the 1832 presidential campaign cycle, though, the other parties that were developing their structures would follow the example of the anti-Masons, so much so that all of the other conventions that year were also held in Baltimore. The National Republicans, a group of anti-Jacksonians largely made up of supporters of former President Adams, held their convention there in December 1831 with 168 delegates in attendance representing 18 states and nominated Henry Clay of Kentucky to oppose Jackson's re-election. The National Republicans weren't satisfied with just one convention, though. In May 1832, a group of young men affiliated with the party held a second convention in Baltimore just prior to the planned Democratic convention and affirmed their support for Clay as well as views on various issues, which became a pseudo-party platform, as the main convention in December had not issued a formal platform. Now, I should note that the drafting and adoption of a party platform, which is basically a statement of the party's ideology on the issues of the day, has become a primary duty and responsibility of national party conventions. It sets the tone for candidates across the nation in the election cycle and priorities for the party. As with other traditions of the National Convention, though, this was one that would take time to develop into the current system. Turning back to the National Republicans' Young Men's Convention of 1832, though, this convention would see something unusual in American presidential politics to that point, and indeed, for a great portion of presidential election history. 
Clay actually made an appearance at the convention to deliver a speech to accept their nomination and thank the young delegates for their support. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The Democratic National Convention that met in Baltimore in late May 1832 became the first in an as-yet unbroken string every four years since, though, as we shall shortly see, some of those conventions proved to be much more contentious than others. The Democratic Convention would see the greatest number of participants out of any of the conventions in that election cycle. 334 delegates representing 23 states, with Missouri being the sole holdout from sending a delegate. Now, the convention did not formally nominate Jackson for a second term. His place as the party's nominee was accepted without question. However, with the vice presidential nomination, the convention established a couple of precedents that would prove quite important later. First, they adopted the unit rule, which, quote, authorized the majority of each delegation to cast the entire vote of the state. Perhaps more importantly for conventions that came not too long after, however, was the establishment of the two-thirds rule. Basically, rather than getting a majority plus one of the delegates' votes to win the nomination, the Democratic National Convention set the bar higher. A candidate had to get two-thirds of the delegate votes to secure the nomination. Despite the trouble that this precedent would cause in subsequent conventions, it was a rule that remained a fixture of Democratic conventions until 1936. Though the Democrats held a second national convention in the run-up to the 1836 presidential election, their new opponents, the Whig Party, did not. As the party apparatus developed, however, they too realized the need for a convention. And thus, in December 1839, the first Whig national convention assembled in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with nearly 250 delegates present. As noted by historian William Nisbet Chambers, quote, the Whig National Convention of 1839 set a number of precedents. It was the first such assemblage to be called by a central party group, the Whig Members of Congress. Not until 1848, when the Democrats established the first national committee, was there a continuing body to perform this function. It was the first to confine the number of delegates from each state to its quota of presidential electors, except for Pennsylvania, due to an issue beyond the scope of this episode to discuss. Returning to Chambers, quote, Finally, and significantly, the Whig Convention was apparently the earliest formally to resolve that reporters of the newspaper press be invited to occupy seats on the floor. 
The optics of the convention and how it plays in the press and the public consciousness has become a key feature of modern national conventions. And in an election that is seen by some presidential history scholars, including Ron Schaefer, as marking the beginning of what we think of as modern presidential campaigns, it is not surprising that the Whigs led the way in inviting in the press to draw on their power to make maximum use of the convention in the campaign effort. The two-thirds rule would first present an issue in the 1844 Democratic National Convention when former President Martin Van Buren, who had been defeated in his re-election bid in 1840, tried once more for the party's nomination. On the first ballot, Van Buren secured 146 out of 266 total possible votes, or 54.9% of the delegate votes. While this was a majority of the votes, this was not two-thirds of the votes. And the convention had, prior to balloting for president, approved the two-thirds rule for nominations by a vote of 148 to 118, nearly the same majority that had supported his nomination. As the convention went on, Van Buren would start to slip. By the fifth ballot, Lewis Cass had taken first place in the balloting with a five-vote lead over Van Buren, but ultimately, on the ninth ballot, dark horse candidate, former Speaker of the House, and former Governor of Tennessee, James K. Polk, would become the party's nominee finally securing 231 votes, a comfortable 86.8% majority. Surprisingly, in all the time until the two-thirds rule was abandoned in 1936, there was only one other candidate besides Van Buren who would earn a simple majority of the votes, but not ultimately achieve the two-thirds majority required for nomination. The other candidate was Speaker of the House Champ Clark at the 1912 Democratic National Convention, who we'll talk more about shortly. For the two major parties in the antebellum period, the conventions proceeded for a few cycles as normal, but increasingly, third parties came to play a role in the system. These parties that developed for a variety of reasons and in the increasingly unstable political atmosphere of mid-19th century America would hold their own conventions and nominate their own candidates for president starting in 1844 with James G. Burney's run as the Liberty Party's candidate. The election of 1856, however, would prove to be the occasion for the rise of a new political party. The Whig Party increasingly became unstable, and in 1854, disillusioned Democrats, Whigs, and Free Soilers gathered together to form a new party, the Republican Party. Their first national convention was held in Philadelphia in February 1856. Around 600 delegates representing 24 of the 31 states attended. As difficult as it may be to imagine, only four slaveholding states and the District of Columbia opted to send delegates to the convention of a party that opposed the extension of slavery into new territories in its platform. The Republicans at the party's first national convention nominated Explorer of the West John C. Fremont as their choice for president that year. It wouldn't be until the 1860 election, however, that the impact of the formation of this new party would be felt. The Democratic Party that assembled for its national convention in April 1860 was as divided as a party could get. As noted by Jules Whitcover, quote, the South Carolina site had been chosen as a gesture of goodwill toward Dixie, but it was a fruitless one. Senator Stephen Douglas of Illinois was the favored candidate by Democrats from the North, but Southern Democrats were a bit wary after two prior Northern Democratic presidents who had done nothing to resolve issues. The divide in the party was not just over the nominee for president, but also over the party platform. Indeed, the choice of presidential candidate would not be the crucial issue, as it was the debate over the platform that prompted some delegates to walk out of the convention. 
As with the larger divide in the nation at the time, the division of the party had its roots in the national debate over slavery. The majority of delegates from six southern states, as well as a handful of delegates from three other southern states, walked out of the Democratic Convention in 1860. As the chairman of the convention ruled that the two-thirds rule would apply to the total number of votes allocated and not just the votes cast, it was destined that the convention would end in deadlock as the number of non-voting delegates was going to prove to be a block that could not be overcome. Indeed, despite 57 ballots over the course of three days, Douglas was only able to earn 50% of the delegate votes needed. Thus, the decision was made to recess for six weeks and have the convention reconvene in Baltimore. To date, 2020 as of this recording, this is the only time that a major U.S. political party convention adjourned to move from one city to another to reconvene. Though the convention in Baltimore would ultimately decide upon a platform and presidential candidate, yes, it would ultimately be Douglas, there would be another walkout in the second convention, and a group of Southern Democrats would come together in late June 1860 in Richmond, Virginia, to nominate their own candidate for president, Vice President John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky. 1860 would see a breakdown in the two-party system, and instead, four candidates would run that year allowing the Republican candidate, Abraham Lincoln, to come out victorious. That, however, is a story for another time. Sticking with our narrative about the history of National Party conventions, as they never chose to adopt the two-thirds rule, the Republicans would continue on a largely undramatic streak of choosing presidential nominees and chill the 1880 cycle. The 1876 presidential election had been controversial in ways that are far beyond the scope of this episode to discuss. And by the time of the next presidential election, the party was divided into two factions. The faction dubbed the Stalwarts, led by Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, was against civil service reform and thus saw former President Ulysses S. Grant as being the perfect candidate to get behind. The other faction, which has been labeled the Half-Breeds, was opposed to Grant's renomination and initially rallied behind Senator James G. Blaine of Maine. Grant, despite garnering and maintaining the plurality of votes in ballot after ballot, was never able to achieve a majority of the delegate votes. When, on the 35th ballot, Representative James A. Garfield of Ohio's name was thrown into the mix, seemingly out of nowhere, he instantly got 50 votes. As one can imagine, this wasn't just spontaneous. But by the next ballot, Garfield achieved what Grant was never able to and got 52.8% of the vote to secure the nomination. For the majority of the rest of the 19th century, The national conventions for the two main parties continued on in a rather standard fashion, but there were a few notable developments that pointed to changes to come in the United States. In 1872, Victoria Woodall became the first woman nominated by an American political party, the Equal Rights Party, as their presidential candidate. Likewise, Frederick Douglass became the first African-American vice presidential nominee when he was chosen by the Equal Rights Party as Woodall's running mate. Douglas would, in 1888, be the first African-American to receive a vote for president in the nomination process of one of the two major parties at the Republican National Convention that year. Unfortunately, these were notable exceptions that would not be matched or surpassed for a great deal of time. As we have already discussed in earlier episodes of the special series, the beginning of the 20th century would also see the beginning of presidential primaries. As discussed in those episodes, though, it would take some time before these contests would come to play a significant role in the presidential nomination process. 
This didn't mean, of course, that Theodore Roosevelt wouldn't use the primaries to attempt to take control of the 1912 Republican National Convention from incumbent President William Howard Taft. Though Roosevelt won 51.5% of the Republican primary votes cast that year, ultimately, it was Taft who controlled the Republican National Committee and who had a lock hold on the Southern delegations at the convention. Thus, a vast majority of the 254 contested convention seats that year were decided in Taft's favor, and decision after decision at the convention went in favor of the Taft faction. Roosevelt ultimately asked his delegates, quote, to abstain from voting, but to remain in the convention as a silent protest to what he regarded as steamroller tactics. Those watching the convention proceedings from the galleries rallied to Roosevelt's support as well, quote, by rubbing sandpaper and blowing horns to imitate the sounds of a steamroller. When it came time for the presidential nominating ballot, though the only names that had been put forward for the nomination were those of Taft and Senator Robert M. La Follette of Wisconsin, La Follette only received 41 votes, while Roosevelt received 107, and 348 disaffected Roosevelt supporters voted present rather than casting their ballots for a candidate. Even if those voting present had voted for Roosevelt, it wouldn't have mattered, as Taft had 556 votes on the first ballot, 51.6% of the delegates, more than enough to secure the nomination. This wouldn't stop Roosevelt, though. He made it clear that he felt dirty dealings had won the day and that he would still, quote, accept the nomination of the honestly elected majority of the Republican convention or a new progressive party. The day that the convention adjourned, the Roosevelt delegates made their way over to an auditorium to hear Roosevelt proclaim his availability for nomination by a new party. In early August 1912, the new, hastily assembled Progressive Party would make the nomination official at a separate convention. The Democrats, meanwhile, also had some dramatic moments at their convention that year. Former Representative William Jennings Bryan had served as the party's nominee in three elections and had come up short in all three. However, he was still seen as being a party leader. Thus, when he flexed his political muscles in standing in opposition to the party's 1904 nominee, Alton B. Parker, serving as temporary chairman of the convention and lost, the convention was deluged by over 100,000 telegrams from around the nation to express their outrage at this disrespect to Bryan. Though Bryan was not in the contention for the presidential nomination that year, it did help to reflect the strong public support for small-P progressives versus more conservative candidates. In that year, as previously mentioned, Speaker of the House Champ Clark was one of the primary contenders for the nomination, but the conservative Clark was challenged by the progressive governor of New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson. Both of them, as well as four other candidates, were put in for the nomination. And on the first ballot, Clark was clearly in the lead with 40.3% of the delegates voting for him while Wilson was a distant second at 29.6%. For Clark, it wouldn't be until the 10th ballot that he garnered a simple majority of 50.8% of the delegate vote. As the two-thirds rule was still in place, though, the simple majority would not be enough. Clark would hold on to this lead through the 16th ballot, but after that ballot, he would start to slip, while slowly but surely, Wilson started to build momentum. Though he was angling to be the one that the party would turn to for a fourth nomination if Clark and Wilson proved unable to break the deadlock, Bryan's choice to support Wilson over Clark in the balloting due to the corrupt Tammany Hall machine's support for the House Speaker helped Wilson to inch forward in ballot after ballot. Wilson on the 43rd ballot finally achieved a simple majority, 
And after Clark and the other candidates finally bowed out, Wilson won the party's nomination on the 46th ballot. Thanks to the two-thirds rule, Democrats in the first half of the 1920s would see two other highly contested conventions. In 1920, the first election year in which women had the vote, and which saw women attending both of the national conventions in significant numbers, it took 44 ballots before Ohio Governor James M. Cox was chosen as the party's presidential nominee. This would be a significant convention for a couple of other reasons as well. Not only was the vice presidential nominee that year a name that you may recognize, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was then serving as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, but the Democratic convention that year was held in San Francisco, the first time that a major party convention had been held west of the Rocky Mountains. In terms of drama, though, it was no match for what the party would see with the 1924 Democratic National Convention. The DNC in 1924 was, to date, the longest national party convention in American history. It convened on June 24th and didn't adjourn until July 10th, 17 days later. In part, the contention that year could be attributed to the fact that the Republican victory in the election of 1920 had been so decisive. However, the problems facing the Democratic Party that year were much larger and more fundamental. Delegates from the more urban areas of the nation rallied around New York Governor Alfred Smith, while those representing rural parts of the country saw the former Secretary of the Treasury, William McAdoo of California, as their ideal candidate. Beyond just those two, 14 other candidates were officially nominated at the convention. And beyond just an issue of personalities, the contention in 1924 saw various interests at work. At this point, prohibition was the law of the land in the U.S., and groups like the Anti-Saloon League aimed to keep it that way. In Al Smith, though, they saw a threat to prohibition and thus rallied around McAdoo, with historian Robert Murray asserting that his headquarters at the convention, quote, at times became a sub-headquarters for the Anti-Saloon League. The Ku Klux Klan was also an active force at the convention opposed to the Catholic Al Smith. Not only were they at work with Klan members as delegates to the convention, again from Murray, quote, the Klan's propaganda was insidious. Thousands of copies of its menacing publication, The Fellowship Forum, were distributed, making a deliberate appeal to religious prejudice and viciously assaulting the Catholic Church. Though by a razor-thin margin, the Klan's forces scored an early victory in a platform battle stemming from a proposal from a minority report that a condemnation of the Klan be inserted in the party platform. That vote erased any lingering doubts that the presidential nomination contest would be contentious. The first ballot was an early victory for McAdoo, with 431 and a half ballots to Smith's 241. The previous election's Democratic presidential nominee, James M. Cox, only got 59 votes. McAdoo still had some work to do, though, as his vote on the first ballot was only 39.3% of the vote, far from the two-thirds needed to win the nomination. There were no real surprises with the result of this first ballot. The surprise, however, would come when, ballot after ballot, Day after day, no winner emerged. The balloting had begun on Monday, June 30th, and after 77 ballots by the end of the week, McAdoo had only gone up to 513 votes, or 46.7%, while Smith had climbed to 367, or 33.4%. Another candidate, though, was starting to rise through the ranks. John W. Davis of West Virginia had served in the U.S. House of Representatives before serving as Solicitor General and U.S. Ambassador to the United Kingdom during the Wilson administration. In the first ballot, he had been down on the lower end of the pack with only 31 votes, 
but by the 77th ballot, he had risen to 76 and a half votes. Still a far cry from victory, but it was a rise that was starting to attract a little notice. Meanwhile, party leaders struggled to figure out how to proceed. William Jennings Bryan, who was serving in the delegation from Florida, sought after the 38th ballot to replay his role as kingmaker that had helped Woodrow Wilson secure the party's nomination in 1912 and requested the floor to try to rally support against Smith. Before he could even take the stage, however, delegates and the audience from the galleries started to object. As his speech went on, it became clear that this man that had been a force in national democratic politics since 1896 had lost his appeal. As Murray explained, quote, in his entire career, he, Brian, had never advocated a program that could command the allegiance of all Democrats. Seeing all issues from an agrarian viewpoint, he was always basically intolerant of those who disagreed with him. His constant moralizing about economic issues had frequently antagonized. Now, in 1924, when economic questions were being submerged by social and cultural issues, Brian was even less able to act as a catalyst. Indeed, with regard to the social and cultural matters which were destroying this convention, Brian was part of the problem, not the solution. This effort was a dismal failure, both for Brian and for the party. A series of proposals were put forward to change the rules in order to end the deadlock, including one idea to have, quote, the convention meet an executive session and listen to each of the candidates, and another to have, quote, the lowest vote-getter dropped after each roll call until only five candidates remained. But each of these ideas was defeated. A proposal to adjourn and reconvene in two weeks in Kansas City was likewise defeated. The only thing that the delegates had agreed upon by the close of business that Friday was, quote, to have representatives of each candidate hold a conference over the weekend. If the idea was that the representatives would be reasonable and that some would agree for their candidate to drop out and give their support to another in order to get closer to a nomination, the plan failed miserably. As Murray stated bluntly, quote, the meeting was unproductive. When the balloting started up again on Monday, July 7th, the vote started to shift in Smith's favor. On the 87th ballot, Smith finally came in first with 361 and a half votes to McAdoo's 336 and a half. This was still, however, only 32.9% of the votes, a far distance away from the two-thirds needed to win the nomination. By the 90th ballot, both Smith and McAdoo had slipped, and though Senator Samuel Ralston of Indiana's telegram withdrawing his name from the contest had been read to the convention the Friday prior, Ralston continued to gain votes and on the 90th ballot rose to third place with 159 and a half votes. Davis of West Virginia, meanwhile, was in sixth place with 65 and a half votes. As noted by Murray, quote, the Ralston Drive represented sheer desperation on the part of some McAdoo delegates. They could not possibly turn to Smith, but they did not want any of the other candidates either. After the 93rd ballot on Tuesday saw yet another indecisive vote, Friends of McAdoo and Smith got the two together in an attempt to break the deadlock. When the convention came back in session that evening, first was read a telegram from Ralston where he said, in essence, No, really, folks. I withdraw my name. Really. Thanks, but no thanks. Then, Franklin D. Roosevelt read a statement from Smith where he announced his intention to withdraw his name, quote, immediately upon the withdrawal by Mr. McAdoo of his name. McAdoo, however, remained in the race, 
and at one point, he leapt back over Smith in the balloting, winning 421 votes to Smith's 367 and a half. Still, however, this was only 38.3% of the vote, which meant there was still a long way to go. Though the race between those two showed no signs of abating, Ralston's second withdrawal did have a huge impact for another candidate. Davis had received 81 and three-fourths votes on the 94th ballot. By the 99th, he was up to 210 votes. This put him third behind McAdoo and Smith, who were tied with 353 votes each. After that ballot, a representative from McAdoo read a statement from the candidate in which he stated that, quote, I feel that if I should withdraw my name from the convention, I should betray the trust confided to me by the people in many states which have sent delegates here to support me. And yet, I'm unwilling to contribute to a continuation of a hopeless deadlock. Therefore, I have determined to leave my friends and supporters free to take such action as, in their judgment, may best serve the interest of the party. In the hundredth ballot, they acted, but not in a decisive way. Smith came in first once more with 351 and a half votes, while Davis came in second with 203 and a half votes. McAdoo ended up with 190 votes, but a chunk of the ballots cast for him previously went to yet another candidate, former Secretary of Agriculture Edwin T. Meredith of Iowa, who jumped up to 75 and a half votes. At that point, William Jennings Bryan approached the platform to speak, but a delegate from the Massachusetts delegation made a motion to adjourn the session. The parliamentarian of the session announced Brian's request to address the convention, to which one delegate replied, for how long, while another cried for him to be thrown out. From Murray, quote, Brian raised his hands, but the boos and the catcalls, both from the floor and the galleries, grew so loud and were so sustained that he faltered. Finally, he gave up, seconded the motion to adjourn, and sadly walked away to the accompaniment of much cheering. When the convention came back together the next day, Meredith's rise continued in the 101st ballot with 130 votes, but this only put him in third place. Meanwhile, the two candidates who had been in a deadlock for so long were falling behind. Smith came in fourth place with 121 votes, while McAdoo only received 52 votes. Yet another candidate, however, was on a meteoric rise. Senator Oscar Underwood of Alabama. Underwood had been in contention since the first ballot where he had garnered 42 and a half votes, but his vote total hadn't changed for 100 ballots. Finally, at this late stage, moderate delegates from the North and South started to view him as a possible compromise candidate, and he came in second with 229 and a half votes. Despite Underwood's rise, Davis came in first for the first time ever with 316 votes in this ballot. It was clear that McAdoo and Smith were completely out of it, but the question remained how the votes would ultimately swing. James M. Cox, meanwhile, after removing his name from contention after the 65th ballot, had begun working behind the scenes to build support for Davis. Bryan, meanwhile, was bitterly opposed to Davis, and he watched his rise with dismay. Quote, Ashen-faced, his jaw set like granite, Brian was seen during the 101st roll call, rushing frenetically here and there, trying to work up support for a McAdoo-Meredith coalition. As had proved to be the case thus far in the convention, Brian was ineffective in this, and the 102nd ballot saw a huge swing for Davis. He ended up with 415.5 votes, or 37.8% of the total. 
Some of these were shifts from previous Meredith supporters, and Meredith in that ballot dropped to a dismal fourth place with 66 and a half votes. Underwood remained in second and rose to 317, but his rise wasn't nearly as large as the swing to Davis. A last-minute push for Senator Thomas Walsh of Montana put him in third with 123 votes, but still, from the 98 votes he had on the previous ballot, it was clear the momentum was behind Davis. Bryan started once more to make his way to the platform, but ultimately decided that it wasn't worth embarrassing himself any more than he already had. Finally, on the 103rd ballot, the votes for Davis had him over the 50% mark, and a motion was made, quote, to make Davis's nomination unanimous. There were at least 50 seconds to the motion. Though it wouldn't be unanimous, Davis would win the nomination on the 103rd ballot with 844 votes, 76.9% of the vote, and the longest convention in history to date was finally able to start wrapping up. Not surprisingly, the delegates didn't take nearly as much time settling on a vice presidential nominee. In a nod to Bryan, they chose his younger brother, Nebraska Governor Charles W. Bryan, as Davis's running mate. There are, of course, many more stories about national conventions, but I think this gives you some sense of how the institution came about and the role it's played in U.S. presidential history. We have, of course, discussed at length the Democratic and Republican conventions of 1940 in the special episode on that election. And I've got another episode coming out about the election of 1968, where we'll see developments in that election cycle that would reform the primary system and the choosing of delegates to the National Convention to the system that is still used in the present day. Thus, I hope you'll join me for the next special episode as we continue our exploration of the history of U.S. presidential elections. Until then, I'd like to thank Elizabeth, Micah, Robin, and Sean again for providing the intro quotes for this episode. And be sure to check out the FLOTUS podcast, the American History podcast, and Number One Observatory Circle once you're done with this episode. I'd also like to thank our patrons, Matthew, Michelle, Kara, and Scott, for their generosity in supporting this podcast. As you can imagine, doing a special series has required me to identify many new sources, and their monthly contributions have provided financial resources which have made that process easier. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to help the podcast but can't commit to a monthly donation, that's no problem at all. Just head to the podcast website, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And in the menu at the top, you'll find a section of the website outlining the many ways that you can support the podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback on the special series thus far. Naturally, you can always leave your comments on a review of the podcast on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can also reach out to me via social media. If you're not connected with me already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to send in feedback or questions via email, Send it on to Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. In what has been a trying year for so many, I hope that I've helped to provide some insight and comfort. For my part, beyond just going into my happy place when I'm working on the podcast, knowing that all of you are out there listening is a pleasant thought. Though we may have to be distant, it doesn't mean that we're disconnected to one another, and that connection will be the light to guide us into better days. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hold up. 
Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.